Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to dive into truths found in your scripture. Thank you for those who are here who um, desire to grow in their understanding. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that we would have a deeper understanding of of the reality behind the mercy of salvation. Lord, what you do to bring us into your fold was no small thing. For you, Lord, it's, it's not hard, but it is intricate. It is detailed. It was foreknown. It was um, very hard because of what it cost and in terms of sacrifice of your son in terms of the working of your spirit in us um and lord we just we're thankful for for everything that you have done for us for those of us who call you lord who call us savior call you savior lord it's a remarkable thing to grasp that knowledge even more so i pray lord that we would grow in our understanding this morning so that you might be glorified that you'd be worshiped even greater um than we did before we love you and praise you amen Okay, this morning it's my pleasure to kick off a, a new series that is going to be looking at some, some fantastic truths. If you um, have done BTI, then you're probably familiar with some of this content because this is uh, taken straight from um, Bruce Demarest, the doctrine of, I'm sorry, the uh, cross and salvation. This is uh, based on one of his chapters in there, The Divine Calling. So either this will serve as a reminder for you of things that you read and maybe a little deeper dive, or it will uh, induce you to take BTI or at least get the book because it's fantastic. Um, So let's start with Romans 8.28 as we look at this doctrine of the calling. Romans 8.28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in that uh, wonderful piece of Scripture, uh, we, we come to understand that... It was not an accident that we were saved, those of us who are, and that quite a bit of forethought went into that. In fact, th- thinking that existed before the foundation of the world, which is a remarkable thought if you even allow yourself to, to think on that for more than you know five minutes. It starts to blow your mind. Um, this morning we're looking at the doctrine of divine calling. And we're going to look at this from a number of perspectives, really, in that... Um, One is biblical teaching on the plan of salvation that centers in God's gracious pre-temporal election of some sinners to be saved, which we just saw in Romans 8, 28 through 30. We'll look at God's provision of salvation through the work of Christ accomplished in his life, his sufferings on the cross, and his present intercession from his throne in heaven. And then lastly, we're going to look at the application of salvation. So if we're saved and, and we have a greater understanding of, of our calling, what are we supposed to do with that? Does it affect, as some people on the hyper-Calvinist side say, let me just sit back and, and um, let God do his thing, and, and I don't really, it doesn't matter to evangelize. We're going to show you that that's absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. So before we get started, we really need to understand, understand the inner nature of, of uh, the person, the, uh, the theological doctrine of divine calling refers to that summons of God in time that both invites and draws the unconverted to Christ in a saving relationship. And that's what we're talking about. How do we come to say, Lord, you are my Savior, to call Christ Lord? How does that ha- take place? And there's a big debate on it, and we'll look at that. What is the character of God's call to sinners? Is the divine call to the unconverted single, undifferentiated, and offered equally to all, as many universalists would believe? Can a person legitimately differentiate between a general external call by a preacher? Say when Pastor Swartz does his um, sermon today, he's going to have a gospel presentation in that. 
So can you discern between that uh, to all persons or, the, uh, or between the internal call of the Spirit that is powerfully effectual for some? It's efficacious. So once we've defined the nature of the divine vocation, we must ask how God's call is extended to those to be saved. How does he actually manifest that call to us? What means or instrument does God use to summon the unconverted to salvation? Can God's call to sinners be resisted by those who hear its invitation? Can we resist it? Can we affirm that God's summons to salvation by way of the Holy Spirit is always irresistible? Alternatively, might the word effectual be more accurately reflective of the nature of the Spirit's calling? The issue is whether free human agents can finally thwart the call of the sovereign God to salvation. This is the very crux of differences among many um, many different churches out there. This is a crux of a difference between Arminianism and Calvinism and Reformed theology versus um, liberal theology. We're going to look at that, but you know it, it really matters. And the more I read and dug into this, the more it really matters. On one hand, you say, look, if I never understand this, I'm still saved. Praise the Lord. But it should cause you to want to worship God even more because you understand what it took to get you there. And it makes a difference on your obedience to Christ. Because if it's your decision, if you could resist God's effectual call, then it's going to affect your obedience in times of crisis. Because then you have the, uh, the ability to walk away from it as well. And we'll look at that a little bit. So it does matter. Why is a divine call to salvation needed anyway? Aren't pre-Christians capable of calling on the Lord freely through the power of their own resources? We just talked about a little bit. Or do the unconverted, in fact, disdain Christ and flee from him until God implants a genuine hunger and desire for Christ as Savior and Lord. I think most of us would tend towards that, but we'll look into it a little bit more. Is it true that depraved sinners must receive a special spiritual enabling from God that enables their coming to Christ in repentance and faith? And then lastly, we need to ask how a faithful understanding of this biblical doctrine of calling might impact the way Christian witnesses to others and share the glorious gospel to the unsaved. So let's look at a couple things here. First, we need to understand the history because you need to figure out where you line up on this. And, um, and I understand that not everybody's on the same page and, and you haven't thought about these things. I remember before I came to Grace and um, this was one of the things that I didn't have a fully developed understanding of and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And this, along with, uh, with the doctrine of election, was one of those things that really um, I wasn't there yet. And so it took study and understanding to, to get there. Not that I'm perfectly right or anything, but I, I like the way I line up on this. Hopefully you will too. So we need to understand um, that there's different interpretations of this throughout history that have led us to where we are now. And some of this, not just history, some of this is right here and now, I should say. So, the first one we'll look at is uh, the Pelagian and liberal view. And, and they would say the natural ability to answer God's universal call. So, Pelagianism was really the first crudely rationalistic system in the church that claimed that persons are capable of performing their moral and religious duties before God without any supernatural assistance whatsoever. People can attain righteousness and perfection merely through the universal grace of creation. And so to become spiritual people, men and women have no need for divine calling involving the application of an external or supernatural power. So they can do it all on their own. So the British monk uh, Pelagius was uh, around in around 418 A.D., Showed, uh, judged that August, the Augustinian view of spiritual inability, which we'll look at in a second, and sovereign grace would undermine the cause of Christian morality. So if there wasn't choice, if they weren't capable of, of attaining this perfection on their own, it would undermine the cause of Christian morality. He argued that humanity exists in the same morally neutral condition as were Adam and Eve in the garden. 
I don't think he got too far into Romans to make that claim, but that was his claim. Free will, defined as the power to choose between good and evil, is a reality in all persons, he would claim. He argued that the ability to perform what God commands is essential to being human. And, since the Ten Commandments are addressed to all people, everyone must be capable of perfectly keeping them. That was his view. If this were not the case, personal responsibility would be a fiction. And it really gets to the crux of the understanding of if, uh, how can we be, um, have nothing to do with our own salvation and yet be completely, um, be completely responsible for our rebellion? That's a big question. My, I remember when Luke asked me that question when he was like eight. Look, that's foundational. It doesn't take you long to get there. Well, how in the world can I be held culpable for something and at the same time have nothing to do to, to get myself out of that situation? It's an it's a interesting paradox. We say, yeah, it's a big question. So he's wrestling with that. Uh, Pelagius is, is wrestling with that. So based on this idea, Pelagius, Pelagius flatly stated that apart from special divine assistance, man is able to be without sin, and he's able to keep the commandments of God all by himself. So for him, the possibility of coming to God lies within nature itself, within the capacity of human willing and action. So in this model, there is no need for God to exert a special internal power upon anybody, for all are able to make themselves one spirit with the Lord by the energy of their own free will. Even further, if God were to exert such a superior power, it would destroy human freedom and compromise moral responsibility. That was his view. And so if we kind of fast forward about, you know, 1,500 years, Modern liberalism, by virtue of its denial of original sin and depravity, affirmation of divine eminence, belief in the universal fatherhood of God, and, po- and postulate the evolution of the human spirit, dismiss the notion of divine special calling to salvation. Just completely dismiss it. And based on that criteria I just listed, it makes sense. That's the, that's the natural evolution of that thought. So many liberal theologians describe that salvation as the flowering of moral personality. I don't know where they come up with this stuff. At the individual level and the creation of a community based on brotherhood and love at the corporate level. So for many liberal thinkers, the doctrine of calling means that the responsibility of both for the beginning and the continuation of Christian living lies with women and men all by themselves. It's all up to them. Lyman Abbott, you guys will like this. Lyman Abbott, lived in 1922 and thereabouts, flat out denied the presence of inherent evil in persons. Quotes, It has sometimes been said that there is no good in man. It would be truer to say that there is no evil in him. We see in this statement that the proper understanding of the nature of man and sin is critical to your understanding of salvation. If you don't have a proper view of the fact that we're depraved, that through the fall we're all sinners, then your comprehension of what you've been saved from is minimized and trivialized, quite frankly. So born out of this conclusion, he said this. This is how he would define salvation. So you see the, gen- the, the evolution of thought. So based on his understanding of sin, this is his definition of salvation. Faith in a companionable God with whom we can be acquainted as a little child is acquainted with his mysterious mother. That's his definition of salvation. The Pelagian liberal position regarding the call to salvation could be stated as, I came by myself. I came by myself. I'm the one who got me there. And while that may sound pretty drastic, that really in some various form probably comprises the majority of thinking of Christianity in America today. No wonder people turn from it. Who would want to follow that? Who, there's no faith in that. I came by myself and by extension, what? I can leave by myself. Came by myself, I can leave by myself. And so let's look at Lutheran understanding of this doctrine the special ability provided to hearers of the gospel that may be resisted. 
it may be resisted. So Lutherans seek kind of a mediating position between Calvinists and Arminians. They kind of like the straddle of a fence a little bit. They stress the universality of God's grace and calling, his vocation, vocatio, the calling, the, the verb vocatio, to salvation through the word that is read, preached, or enacted in the sacraments. The Father loves all people. Christ provided redemption for everyone on the cross, and the Spirit desires to convert all people everywhere. Okay, so it's going out to everybody. Lutherans generally dismiss the Calvinistic distinction between external and internal call to salvation. So they're more on just that general call. And it's up to you. You can, you can resist that call. There's no special call. One authority within the denomination said that Lutheran dogmaticians reject this doctrine of a double call because it jeopardizes our confidence in the universality and reliability of God's offer of salvation. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't contradict God's offer of salvation, but it definitely contradicts the universality of it, right? You can see that. So if the effectual call results only from a particular election of grace, which is what we hold to here, then God's external call addressed to the non-elect cannot be intended seriously, which is absolutely true. But they don't like that. So they're going to find an end around. They would insist that the universal call to salvation always brings a measure of illumination that reveals sinners' need of Christ and that in some measure empowers all to respond to the gospel message. However, in this self-assertion, sinners may resist the grace to the end that it fails to operate sparingly in their lives, savingly in their lives, I'm sorry. So the Lutheran position on this call to salvation would be summarized as we have up here, God brought me to Christ and I did not resist. So they're getting there. God brought me to Christ, absolutely, and I did not resist. You might have a little contention with that. Next, let's look at the Arminian position. This is where, you know, we really kind of, us reform folks, us conservative reform folks always do battle with Arminian thought, but it's better to understand why you do battle with them than just to say, you know, carte blanche that, you know, we don't agree. So similar to Lutherans, Arminians claim that there is only one kind of grace, so there is but a single, general, or universal call from God to sinners to be saved. We hold to here a double call, a universal, and then a special call. We're going to break that down, but they only believe in that universal call. Most Arminians affirm that God issues the call by a general working of the Spirit on the soul and by explicit gospel preaching. And that's why within the Arminian movement, you have these huge revivals that go out. And our revivals are fantastic. That's part of the work, absolutely. But they would stop there. That that big general call is all that's necessary for somebody to become repentant and come to faith. Arminians maintain that prevenient grace, a benefit that flows from Christ's death on the cross, neutralizes human depravity. This is, that's an important distinction. And restores to pre-Christians everywhere the ability to heed God's general call to salvation. So that initial work on the cross neutralized our depravity. And therefore, we all have that ability to come to God in salvation. Prevenient grace and the universal call either by either may be accepted or rejected. So again, man has that component of free will to say, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to go ahead and be a Christian. Or that sounds like foolishness. I think I'm going to go ahead and choose the other side. So completely on that person's distinction. And so the Arminian view of calling to Christ would be stated as, God started the process. Oh. I did it. Did I do it? I did it. Is that me? How are we doing? Moving. I don't know what happened there. All right. Think I'm bug you guys a little bit. All right. Fair enough. So uh, God started the process, and I cooperated. I cooperated. I like that. Okay, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on what we would hold to be our position here at our church. The reform position, a general call that may be resisted. So a general call that may be resisted. This is the distinction time, so put your thinking caps on. And a special call that's effectual for salvation. Absolutely, there's a general call that's done through preaching. We're going to break that down. 
but that there's a special effectual call that activates your faith. So Augustinian and Reformed theologians understand Scripture to teach that by virtue of original sin, Adam and Eve, and depravity, sinners for whom Christ died themselves are spiritually incapable of responding to the gospel invitation. They're incapable of it. We see that in Romans 8, 7, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, 4 through 5, and 4, 18. That is established in Scripture. The general call and special call are two aspects of one summons of God to salvation. The general call to the unsaved comes through the indiscriminate offer of the gospel through the preached word. That's the universal call. The special call is affected by the Holy Spirit's work on the heart. That sounds better. Thank you. Um, In short, the spiritual's effectual effectual call opens sinners' hearts, thereby creating a new desire and hunger to know Christ. It activates you. The general call meets with a variety of responses uh, with the unconverted, But the effectual call effectively draws sinners to Christ. And we can say that that is irresistible. If God's calling you, we're going to look at Paul. If God's calling you, try and resist the Almighty. Try to have an argument. How'd that work out for Job? Try to have an argument with the creator of everything. And say that you can resist that. The general call is a legitimate offer to whoever, whosoever will, even though its efficacy depends on the gracious power of God's Spirit. We find evidence for both these two callings, these separate callings, in Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22, 1-14. We're going to look at that in, in uh, detail in a second. In the account of the opening of Lydia's heart for the evocation of the saving faith found in Acts 6, 14, 16, 14. We're going to look at Saul being converted to, uh, on the road to Damascus, becoming Paul. Since the special call is grounded in the general call, Christ's followers diligently proclaim the gospel to all persons everywhere. Why? Because the universal call is part of it. But God, through the Spirit, sovereignly causes chosen hearers of the preached word to be quickened spiritually and to be drawn to Christ. So Augustine found this doctrine of special calling confirmed by many scriptural examples. We can also look, in addition to the ones I mentioned earlier, uh, thus Lazarus, who was dead and buried in the tomb, illustrates the soul of the unconverted, smothered by sins and hiding from God's face. Lazarus was dead. Not making any resistance to, to Christ's call. Not making a distinction uh, of whether he has the autonomy to choose life or death. He's dead already. Jesus command Lazarus, come out. In John eleven four forty three. 43, this signifies the spiritually dead person called by God's power and summoned to a new life. It was a very vivid illustration of the reality of the special call. Augustine understood Scripture to represent effectual calling as individual. So in the case of, say, Abraham or Saul or Lydia, right, as on an individual, one-on-one basis, but also corporately, as in the faithful Jewish remnant, the New Testament churches, the body of Christ, are all called in this same fashion. Abraham had no choice but to enter into that covenant with God. Why? Because God said, hey, by the way, Abraham, you're mine. And he didn't resist. He couldn't resist. He reasoned that the hearts and minds of Jesus, this is Augustine, the hearts and minds of Jesus' disciples needed to be open to spiritual truths. How much more do the minds of the depraved sinners require supernatural enlightening and empowering? To this end, he wrote, Since certainly, this is Augustine again, Since certainly there is not ability, whatever in free will, to believe, unless there be a persuasion or summons towards someone in whom to believe, it surely follows that it is God who both works in man, the willing to believe, 
and in all things precedes us with his mercy. I love that. I love that. You get a fuller picture of who Christ is and what it take to sa- took to save you. Some of his character and of his nature. Steve was preaching uh, at the Cornerstone or Unstained at our house for the youth on Wednesday. And he was talking about just the knowledge of God and how it increases your worship. You need to know more about... Uh-oh. You need to know more about what it took to save you so that your worship can be deepened and broadened in your knowledge of who God is. When you pray to God, you understand what it took to save you. Then your prayer life gets extended, right? He preceded us with his mercy. I love that. John Calvin, around 1564, also argued that by virtue of spiritual blindness caused by personal depravity... The Spirit's powerful influence is needed to draw sinners to Christ. Why? Because they're dead. He noted 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, and 14 and 16, John 6, 44. The Word of God is like the sun, he said, shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed. Universal call. But with no effect among the blind. The sun's shining on the blind. The blind don't know whether it's shining or not. That's what he's saying. Now, all of us are blind by nature in this respect, because why? We're dead in our sin. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through his illumination, makes entry for it. That's what Calvin said. Appealing to the parable of the wedding banquet, again in Matthew 22, 1-14, and particularly Jesus' words, many are called, but few are chosen. We're getting a little closer here. Calvin said that there are two aspects of the divine call. Two, the general call by which God invites all equally to himself through the outward preaching of the word. The other kind of call is special, which he designs for the most part to give to the believers alone. While the inward illumination of the spirit, he causes the preached word to dwell in their hearts. It doesn't just bounce off. It doesn't just get reflected or deflected or, or uh, rationalized. No, it sits there. And all of you who are saved, you understand that. And if any of you didn't grow up in the church like I did, there is a the clear line between when I thought Christianity was idiocy. And literally that same day, it was unbelievable. It was the illumination of everything that I had, I had been missing my entire life. If I had the choice, I would have refused it. Praise be to God, though, I didn't. J.I. Packer says the biblical language for calling has a broader referent that focuses on all persons verbally addressed or summoned by the word of God. It also possesses a narrower and effectual focus in the sense of an act of summoning which effectively evokes from the address the response which it invites. To sum that up, saying, if, they're invi- if God's inviting you, you're coming. God's inviting you, you're coming. You're not, you're not RSVPing maybe, right? You're not saying, well, we might be there. The kids don't have a soccer game. No, you're coming. He continues that God's effectual calling is creative and that it brings into existence and, it's, and it represents the temporal execution of his eternal purposes. Not just in the calling of you and I, but in the Old Testament, Yahweh called Abraham the prototype of the chosen nation into an inviolable covenant relationship with himself. Abraham tried to screw that up. God didn't allow it. For, for millennia, the Jewish nation was trying to screw that covenant up. But God didn't allow it. Why? Because God called him. That's why. He called Israel to be his elect people. Same verb. The Lord called and drew Israel from 430 years of Egyptian bondage. Same verb. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Get a better picture of God's character. These and other examples prove that divine calling, more than a verbal summons, 
the outcome of which remains problematic. In the New Testament, effectual calling is an internal, spiritual event that focuses on the individual. The verb call and the noun calling, clasis, I'm going to screw that up, Jeremiah, now refer to the effective evocation of faith through the gospel by the secret operation of the Holy Spirit, who unites men to Christ according to God's gracious purpose and election. So they're dovetailed, they're hand in hand with, with the doctrine of election. He's only effectively calling those whom are elected, which is what the Arminians had issue with, right? They didn't like that. Or the, uh, the Lutherans, I'm sorry. The Reformed position on the calling to salvation in this model could be summed up as God brought me to Christ. Enough said. God did the work. But we're not going to leave it just there because I have time. So I'm going to keep going. So let's, let's exposit this doctrine a little bit. Let's, let's really understand it, because my goal here is that you better understand what it took to bring you to salvation, but then if you get out on the street and you're having a conversation, not dogmatically, not oppressively, but intellectually are able to support the foundation for which our church stands. So let's look at some of the language here. The verb kara, kara, and root-related words occur 689 times in the Old Testament. Kara means to call out and invite. It can be used in different ways in the naming of persons, places, or things. Summons to a task or a ministry. God's call to service proceeds from his sovereign and eternal purpose. Interestingly, though, the divine call to service is not a bare or powerless invitation. He gives folks the power to do with what he calls. Rather, God's call is the means by which he makes men who are entirely unqualified into instruments of his will. Look no further than here. Look no further than yourselves. Look no further than Paul. Look no further than Peter, who was just a poor fisherman and gives the, gives the, the call to thousands to be saved on the day of Pentecost. All of a sudden, Peter is eloquent? That wasn't Peter. It was God giving him the power to do what he had been called to do. So he doesn't just say, go do. He says, go do, and I'm going to help you out. I'm going to make it possible for you. It's also used in terms of a corporate calling to a national privilege. God summoned Israel from harsh Egyptian bondage to privileged allegiance with God Almighty himself. Hosea 11.1 1, again, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It can also be an invitation to repentance and salvation that was often neglected or disobeyed. That would be the general call. It has the ability to be disobeyed. As the Lord said to the faithless in Israel, I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. So there is a general call that can be ignored. And then lastly, the use of these, this term kara God's act of drawing people into a saving relationship with himself, putting his arms and bringing them in. For example, when Yahweh called Abraham into a redemptive relationship. Isaiah 31.2 says, When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. So that's the Old Testament. What about some of the language in the New Testament? We have that on here? Yeah. Kaleo, to call appears 148 times. I was practicing with this with Anne this morning. Proskalemai. Ah, oh, man, I knew I was going to mess it up. Proskalemai. Proskalemai. Doggone it. I thought I had that too. Proskalemai. To summon 30 times is appeared. Klesis, calling or an invitation, appears 11 times. Kletos is called, invited, also another 11 times. So this word group is used in various ways that are similar to the Old Testament. Naming, as in the case of Jesus and, and Cephas. Um, a call to a, a state or a um, state of life. A task or a state of life, rather. Like when James and John were put to service or Paul uh, was called to apostleship. Um, 
It's also used as an invitation or command to salvation that may be sinfully disregarded. And I just put up some, I don't, I don't want you to think that we're just pulling this stuff out of thin air. There's biblical support for this. So if you want to jot these down and go back and do some of your own study, jot them down. So the invitation, so we're talking about the two different calls, the universal call and the specific efficacious call. And we're saying those are separate. So is there any biblical standing for that? Yeah. So the invitation or command of salvation that may be sinfully disregarded, that would be the universal call, like what will happen later when, when Steve preaches the gospel. Some will hear and say no. That is the general call. You can see that in Matthew 9.13. You see them up there. Jot those down. The call in these texts are those summoned to salvation with varying outcomes, both positive and negative. People can be saved out of that. But that's because, and we'll prove a little bit later, because in addition to that, the Holy Spirit was illuminating their hearts. And then in Matthew twenty two fourteen, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen from Christ's own lips. God's work of evoking or drawing into a saving relationship, which I would argue you cannot resist, the effectual drawing that brings sinners to faith and salvation is also used quite a bit in the New Testament. You can see the, the references there on the bottom. Jot those down. In each of these texts, which you'll find when you go look at them yourselves this week, in each of these texts you'll find that those whom God called always, always came to faith and salvation. Always. The outcome is assured. The calling according to divine purpose always proves effectual. Did I say always? So let's look at the external verbal call. The one that can be disregarded. Both of these, I'm sorry. The single call to God to salvation is, has two perspectives that we've been talking about. A universal verbal call that meets with a variety of responses and a particular special call that infallibly leads to salvation. So let's look at the universal call in a little more depth. The universal call is the invitation or summons to salvation conveyed through a cognitive encounter. Your mind is here, you listen, uh, is understanding, your ears are in, your, your eyes are there, you're, you're, you're all in listening to the gospel message. This can be done through a gospel sermon, uh, a witness by one of us to an unbeliever, an evangel- uh, evangelistic Bible study. It can be done through a Christian film. There's that whole movement going out there with the Jesus film. That can, that's part of it, of a universal call. Um, it can be a personal reading of the scriptures. You know, some lost 15-year-old just says, my life is just crazy. Let me just open. And they turn to Romans 8. That would be wonderful. They can, that's a universal call. They're engaged with the gospel at that time. This free offer can be met with indifference, though, or even outright rejection. And so the invitation may prove unfruitful. Are you guys getting a more well-rounded understanding of the universal call? It can be met with acceptance and trust and bear fruit into eternal life. But we need, that would need to accompany something else special call. In the New Testament, Jesus issued a general call with these words, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Later he said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's, uh, he's extending the invitation to everybody. This legitimate offer of life can be rejected by those who hear it though. And, the, and so with that, there was a sad lament over the holy city when the Lord Christ cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The universal call went out. The same truth went out to everybody, but they were unwilling which uh, underscores personal responsibility in the matter. So why do some hear but are not saved? Why is that? 
why some hearers are not saved. In every gospel invitation is the trustworthy promise that all who accept its terms will be saved. Acts 2.21, Romans 10.13. However, the truth concerning sinners' inability and unwillingness to heed the general gospel call is also clear in the New Testament. So intellectually, we have this up here. Yeah. Intellectually, Paul stated that there is no one who understands. You don't understand the things of God. Romans 11, 311a, all by yourself. You don't understand it. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. From 1 Corinthians 2, 14, you can't understand spiritual things unless you're illuminated by the Spirit, Paul is saying. Like a radio receiver, I like this analogy, like a radio receiver tuned to another frequency, sin-darkened minds cannot make adequate sense of spiritual signals. The message of the gospel is a noise, not a communication, until God tunes the set of man's heart. I like that. That's simple. We get that. Although, I don't know. Some of the younger people, have you ever even tuned a radio? Mike? You ever tuned a radio? It was all on your phone. I have to come up with a new analogy for iPhones with that. And then vocationally, Paul states that there is no one who seeks God. So you're in your own mission, your life, that's what vocation is, that's your mission. In your life mission, before you're saved or illuminated by the Holy Spirit, you're not seeking God. No, quite the opposite. For all you who remember your life prior to salvation, You weren't seeking God. You weren't looking for ways to honor the Lord, thinking to unearth the truths of the Bible. No. You were looking at anything but that. Paul stated that there is no one who seeks God. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so, in Romans 3.12. Paul summed up the problem by stating that in the spiritual realm, sinners are dead. They're dead in their transgressions and sins. And for this reason, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.44 And then we need to look at the internal effectual call. The internal effectual call. By this we mean, let's, let's define this. This is a wordy definition, but it, it, it covers a lot of ground. So it almost has to. It's the act of divine power mediated through the proclaimed word by which the Spirit illuminates darkened minds, softens stubborn wills, and inclines contrary affections, worldly affections, toward the living God thus leading the regenerate to trust Christ in a saving relation. And if you think about that long enough, you meditate on that long enough, if you, if you remember the time when you weren't saved and then the time after, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You had a contrary will. And now all of a sudden, your will aligns with the Lord. That's the internal effectual call that made that possible for you. And so we're going to look at the parable of the wedding banquet from Matthew 22, 1 through 14 as the most explicit text in the gospel dealing with divine calling to salvation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And we're going to look at this parable of the wedding feast because this is important. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out from the roads and gathered all them who were found. That same word gathered, called all those who were found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And just for a little more context, let us also turn to Luke fourteen sixteen through 24 for a little more context to this. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say, Those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they are all alike. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and bind them and and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people. Compel them. Call them. Effectually call them to come in that that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And so we see in that both of these calls. This parable told by Jesus distinguishes between God's universal general call and his particular effectual call. The first group invited by the king's servants the Old Testament, were the Old Testament prophets, were mainstream Jews offered messianic salvation. That was what the entire Old Testament was pointing towards. Matthew emphasized the universal call in verse 3 when in the twofold use of the verb kaleo, the king sent his slaves to call those who had been invited, called and invited being the two forms of kaleo. But consumed with worldly interests and indifferent to their spiritual needs, the invitees rejected the invitations, persecuted the messengers, and also were pun- and so were punished to death, as we saw in verse 7. So consequently, the king sent his servants to bring the banquet, uh, bring to the banquet the unfit and unworthy. You can see yourself in that. An act that signifies the successful preaching of Jesus and his apostles to the outcast Jews. These would be the tax collectors and the sinners that Christ was talking about and the Gentiles. The latter invitations accomplished the intended purpose that in that a crowd of people joined the king for a wedding feast. Still the general call. People got to the wedding feast. Not everybody could stay. The second and third recruiting efforts recorded in Luke involve a strong language of forceful constraint. And I tried to emphasize that in my reading of it. The servants were to bring in the poor and the crippled. And the servants were bidden to make them come in. Make them. Forcibly make them come in. The parable ends with Jesus' terse saying, For many are called but few are chosen. The called represents the larger group summoned. The larger group, the universal call. The chosen were the smaller group forcefully brought to the banquet. Do you understand? They didn't have a choice. The servants of the king made them come to the banquet. They did not have a choice in the matter. The calling must refer to the gospel message to which they, the first group, made a merely outward response, not being chosen by God. Jesus inferred that none who received only the general call will taste of my banquet, or, in other words, they will not be saved. 
From this, we can conclude that God extends a general call externally to many through the gospel preaching that uh, may be sinfully rejected, as we saw in that first group. But the special call issued inwardly by the Spirit effectually accomplishes the Father's salvific purpose. We can look also at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This resulted from a special call by the risen Christ that was powerfully effective for Saul. Saul, who regarded the Christian movement as blasphemous heresy, he terrorized the young church. Well documented, Acts 9, 1 through 2, 22, 4 through 5, Acts 26, 10 through 11. Paul himself said in Acts 26, 9, he was to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus Christ. Outside of Damascus, you guys know this, Christ appeared to Saul in the form of a glorious heavenly light that while blinding his physical eyes, opened his spiritual eyes to Jesus' true significance. The vision and the voice of Christ conveyed the special call to salvation. Driven by a darkened mind, Saul had fought. He had fought against Christ. But the Savior pursued Saul and overcame his sinful heart through grace. Paul later testified that Christ's summons to salvation was wholly effectual. Yeah, (laughs) it was very effectual. You might imagine... And as Ananias had said to Paul in Acts twenty two fourteen, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Paul understood the effectual nature of God's special calling when he wrote to Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. A special call. C.S. Lewis shed a little bit of light on this. He wrote, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion, in other words, his pursuit of us, is what freed us. I like the way C.S. Lewis writes. He almost makes you kind of want to tear up a little bit when you think about him. He writes so compellingly. The Spirit's effectual call through the Word gently but powerfully draws sinners. Not always gently, though. Sometimes abruptly. Sometimes in the abyss of your existence, some of you were called. Right? But always efficaciously into freedom that is found in Christ. Augustine said it this way, Lord, you first sought me out and brought me back on your shoulder. The imagery of a of a comrade going into battle and heaving the dying man on his shoulder and carrying him out. That dying man had no uh, compulsion to do that on his own. So, we understand this a little bit better now, hopefully. Hopefully we get that there's this universal call and it's a special call and that it was an amazing feat to bring you to salvation because left on your own, your eternal destiny is horrendous, what Christ called the outer darkness to the place of the gnashing of teeth. But now that we understand this a little bit better, what are you supposed to do with that? You know, at some point in our lives, we may lose sense of our Christian identity and our vocation, otherwise our, our mission. We lose sight of that sometimes. We get very complacent, don't we? We go to church, we go home, we have a nice lunch, we take a nap, we go to work, we go to school. And we just kind of do our thing. Well, what's your mission? What on earth are you here for? Why is God not just taking you out right now? Well, we have to do a few things here. It's important we fully understand the multifaceted purpose of God's gracious calling. We've been called according to God's purposes in, in Romans 8.28, we read. So believers must recognize that they're called to a new identity in Christ. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, 1. The chosen are called to fellowship and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now in Christ Jesus you were once far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 13. We are called to Christian freedom. 
Freedom from sin. You, my brothers, were called to be free from a Galatians 5.13. Free to serve one another and unfettered in, uh, uh, serve one another unfettered in the spirit of love. By grace, believers have been called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Colossians 3.15 Christ has called you to a life of proclamation and praise. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Keep that under the bushel basket. You let that light shine. You're supposed to be praising him to everybody. Why are you different? Why are you joyful? Why are you have cancer? How are you doing this? To that end, Christians are called to a life of perseverance and suffering. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 You were called to a holy life. You were called to a holy life. My, my, my life verse, I urge you to live in a life worthy of the calling for which you have received. Ephesians 4.1 Walk in a manner worthy. You're called uh, to gain the heavenly prize. Forgetting that, uh, that is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.13-14. And then lastly, we're called to receive the kingdom of God, eternal life and heavenly glory. For doing what? Nothing. That should cause you to proclaim God's name and just praise him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What an amazing benefit for doing nothing. We're faithfully to deliver the gospel call. I mentioned earlier that sometimes these truths can make us maybe, maybe, hopefully not, but maybe sit on our hands a little bit. Say, hey, God's got all this covered up. I'm probably just going to screw it up anyway, so I'm just going to sit out. God called us to be in the game. Romans 10, 14 through 15, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We don't know who God chose to be saved. We don't know that. What is our job? Preach, share, do. We are to trust God to give the spiritual fruit. We preach, we persuade, we plead with sinners to repent and be reconciled to God. And ultimately, though, we know that it is the sovereign and all-powerful God who gives spiritual fruit. It is he who draws sinners to Christ who causes the church to multiply, who makes the gospel prevail and and broke down strongholds. By the way, this is the only reason why there's still a church today. Because if it was up to our own merit and our own measure of strength, it would have failed right from the beginning. How long did it take the Gnostics to come up and prop up? About two years? No, because it's God who continues to make his church prevail. It was God who saved the remnant in Israel. It's God doing all the work. We just have to be faithful, as Paul urged us. And we don't have to fear that our words will fall on deaf ears. Why? Because we have promises, like in Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty to me. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So we just have to be faithful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this amazing truth. Thank you for what you did Thank you for calling us. Thank you for illuminating our hearts and opening our blind eyes and resurrecting our dead souls. 
thank you for making your call efficacious for us. And Lord, if there's anybody in here who does not know you, who has not had that call, who has not seen the light as it were, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would open their eyes and illuminate their hearts so that they may come into saving faith with you as well. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you for this time that we had to share them together. In Christ's name, amen.